thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is a guy who can cook minute rice in 30 seconds, <laughs> Mike Vandebogard. Uh, thank you, Joe, and thank you once again to all of our loyal listeners for tuning in. Just a couple of updates. I'm going to first go over all of our new Patreon shoutouts. So thank you to everyone here, Caleb Lawrence Teague, Chris McAllister, Sarah Hubbard, Jessica Barron, Yaz- <laughs> Yazdani, Sorry if I got your last name wrong. Uh, James Verberg and Gregory Pasador. So uh, thank you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, we we always joke that you know for less than a cup of coffee a day you can help help support uh, locations unknown. It's dollar a month, um, and you know with inflation now that's like fifty sixty cents. So it's really right. nothing. I have a funny story, okay. and I think you'll remember this person. Uh, it's a supporter of ours that we know that didn't know that we did the show. Oh really? <laughs> So, do you remember Julie? I won't say her last name, but Julie, Julie from from Spalding. She's working the floor. No, all right. You would. I'll tell you her last name later. Okay. So I don't say it on the air, um, unless she becomes a patron subscriber. Then we'll we'll, we'll, we'll have her. to. But she comes. She grabs me on the way and worked it. She goes, Joe. I need to talk to you. So I'm listening to my favorite podcast the other day, and it just hits me. This thing sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> and she realized she'd been listening to our show for over a year That's and hilarious. didn't know it was us and i still think she doesn't know it's you like That's, she worked with you so now yeah. she's probably gonna hear this episode and be freaked out that i mentioned it but then probably know it's you now too that's funny <laughs> i thought yeah. that was pretty funny I, uh, I sorry i don't remember you julie but joe will tell me your last yeah. name later and she she found it from a recommendation from another podcast oh so i'm gonna figure out what a podcast it is and we can give them a little shout out sweet um and again this is this episode's another uh recommendation from a listener so we, we want to really thank Melissa Deutsch for recommending this case. I had never heard of it before. Uh, it's actually pretty interesting, though. Joe has hiked in this area, so when he's going through the location profile, he's going to kind of fill in some of his experiences from uh, this area. So that's just kind of a call out to everyone listening. If you have a case you're, you know of and you think it would be an interesting episode, let us know because there's so many cases out there that we've not heard of. Um, and uh, we do show favoritism towards Patreon and YouTube subscribers. <laughs> I'm just saying it. I mean, yeah. I'm going to be honest and upfront. If you're a paying subscriber, you're going to get bumped to the top of the list. <laughs> That's just how it is. Yeah, and uh, one final note. Uh, Joe and I are, are, are diligently working on getting a third episode out on uh, Gwen Hasselquist. So for all of those listening who are you know related to her and have been contacting us, don't worry. We, we haven't forgotten about you, and we're... We're, we're still working on it. There's so many people have reached out to us on that case that want to share their information and their experiences and everything that it's just taken a lot longer to kind of compile all this. Yep. So, And a lot of them, um, again, we like to really support 
Uh, I would say our journalistic integrity. This is like the most journalistic we've been. <laughs> yeah. A lot of those people do not want to be identified. So Mike and I are working diligently to ensure if we do share information, we're checking with these people to say, hey, if we share this, is that okay? Or could this connect you? And we are working with them. So that is part of the delay. We're making sure we get the right information. Yeah. And we're also ensuring that we don't out anybody who wants to remain entirely anonymous. So we are taking our time to do it right uh, this is the first time we're doing anything like it, so we're making sure we're doing it right, and we're not going to cause anybody any problems in their life. Yeah, and it's uh, it's pretty cool. We also uh, just recently, um, the a family member related to Cat Hammontree, uh, a woman we did a case on a while back, reached out to us and wants to do an interview about Cat. Um, so we're probably going to have a, another inter- another follow up episode on her too coming up. So uh, a lot of cool stuff coming up. So, but that's all I had. All right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. September 19th, 2016. An experienced mountain climber sets out to summit two iconic Colorado peaks in the Maroon Bells wilderness. When he failed to check in, authorities were notified and the search began. Join us this week as we investigate the mysterious case of David Cook. Bells are peaks located in the Maroon Bells Snowmass Wilderness Area of the White River National Forest, which is about a 200-mile drive west on I-70 out of Denver. So the Maroon Bells, I think, are the most photographed place in Colorado. Are they? Yeah, it's really iconic. If you've ever seen, I think they use it on a beer can for a little bit, like the Coors can maybe. Oh, really? I think so. That one I'm not sure of, but I just recall it's like the double mountain peak. Yeah. Um, for those of you watching, we'll show some videos and stuff in a little bit that that have that, and I'm sure I'll have the picture on the cover of the uh, episode. Um, it is a national forest. It's about uh, 2.2 million acres, and it's roughly the size of a Yellowstone National Park. So it's very big. It's big, yeah. Um, and it's in, as we said, it's in Colorado. Uh, it was established in June 28th of 1902. So visitors per year. Uh, this forest sees about 12.2 million. Uh, that was in 2018. Uh, this is a small percentage compared to the 150 million visits to all the national forests in 2018. So, but this would be this would be in the top four of national parks if it were a national park. Yeah, I was actually I was looking up those numbers and um, it was surprising. I figured national parks would have a higher you know visitor you know number, but um, I maybe it's because a lot of the national forests are free. Yeah, and it's you know it's unique about this one. They have like a little visitor center, mm-hmm. and they have a nice path to where you can see the mountains. Yeah, so that's part of it. Um, I'm gonna keep talking about it, and I'll just play this video in the background. So if you are watching, you'll be able to see the video. Um, for those of you who don't watch, I know we got your emails that you can't see, but 
that's it's kind of like Joe Rogan. Sometimes they play videos and we're going to talk over it, so you can do both. <laughs> so you can listen to it again and watch it. Yeah. Um, but I'm just showing a video of our hike. So it's like well-groomed trail. You can see it's very forested, but the trails are really well-groomed, and it's just a beautiful area when you're going to it. So it would be in the top four if it were a national park. Um, some interesting facts about Colorado. No U.S. president or vice president has ever been born there. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> Um, Colorado is home to one of the largest preserves, uh, preserved set of dinosaur tracks in the world at the Picket Wire Canyon. Uh, you can find more than 1,300 steps across roughly one quarter mile. That's pretty cool. They do a, have a lot of dinosaur excavation museums in the little towns in the yeah. mountains there. It's awesome. Oh, this is all footage I took with my drone, by the way. So it's, not, really cool. it's not stolen from uh, other areas. Okay, <laughs> that, is, that, that was it. This is a different mountain now. I hit like four peaks that weekend, so... We won't, we won't focus on all of those. Um, <clears throat> so the highest ski lift in North America can be found at Breckenridge Ski Resort, dropping skiers off at the very high 13,000 feet. I've been, I've been to Breckenridge and on that lift. It's uh, pretty terrifying if you've not <laughs> skied a lot in the mountains. <laughs> I've never skied in the mountains. It's amazing. If you've ever skied, uh, I've only skied in the Midwest. Um and Breckenridge was my first uh, ski resort out in the mountains, and I was, I was a little. Scared. So you went right to the top, right? Just, to, <laughs> yeah, we just hit it hard right away. And honestly, uh, the snow, com- the snow out here in the Midwest in the winter, it's all like icy and compacted. There was like fresh powder like up to your knees, and it was so easy to like move around in. I have heard that if you can ski in Wisconsin, yeah, you can ski almost anywhere. I mean, it was still really hard because we. You know, that high up, it was pretty pretty steep, uh, but it was so much easier to stay in control just because the snow was so nice. But That's awesome. Yeah, it was super cool. I'm totes jelly. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you know it's against the law to pick Colorado State flower, the Colorado Blue Columbine, on public land or without prior consent of a private landowner? How would they ever know? I, uh, they would know. They would know. When, when you post it on Instagram like a moron. That's true. <laughs> with your location tag. Uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado is home to more than 300 days of sunshine a year, making it one of the sunniest places in the country. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Mesa, Ver- Mesa Verde National Park is one of the richest archaeo- archaeological sites in the world with more than 4,000 protected areas, many of which originate from 600 to 1300 A.D., that's awesome. Is that the one where they have like the carved in the side of the mountain? Yeah, we actually the, did a yeah, we, we saw did a case on a guy who went missing in that national yes. park. Yes, I remember looking at those pictures and like it looked like something you'd find in Mexico or like overseas. And it's like, yeah. oh, this is in the Rockies. Yeah, <laughs> it's so cool. Uh, two men set the record for the longest session of billiards ever in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Their final time one hundred hours straight. That's more than four days. <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> Like, did they play multiple games, or just they were that terrible at billiards? It took four days to get all yeah, the balls may, in. Maybe they have the second record for worst yeah. billiards <laughs> players. I don't know. <laughs> it's like someone with the most home runs also has the most strikeouts. Right. Uh, Glenwood Springs, Colorado, is home to the world's largest hot springs pool found at Glenwood Hot Springs. Colorado is home to Four Corners Monument, the only place where the where corners of four states meet, or do they? <laughs> Recent reports have suggested that the monument is actually located a couple miles away from the official spot. That's probably, I could imagine, A, they didn't have the technology then, and then B, 
Doesn't like the crust move a little bit every or, year? Or the contractor put it in, and then when they got done, his supervisor's like, hey, uh, it's the wrong spot. <laughs> hey, you know, Bob. Like, hey, Bob. Hey, Bob, you're a couple miles, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the road always go. Go, the road always only goes here. They're fine. <laughs> it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> All right, so the climate will break it down by seasons. In spring, the mountains are still covered with a deep blanket of snow, while the south-facing slopes of the foothills often begin to drought in early May. Temperatures vary widely with the lows usually below freezing. In summer, the high elevations may hold large snow fields on the north-facing slopes well into July. July is also when the alpine wildflowers begin to bloom, generally peaking during the second half of the month. Temperatures may often reach well into the 80s in the lower elevations, but peak out in the mid-70s above the tree line. Monsoonal flows will often develop in July and bring afternoon thunderstorms to the mountains until late August. Didn't you get caught in a... Bad storm out there. I did. Yeah. yeah, it's um. You always think like being in the Midwest, like July is a great time to go. Yeah, and we went early July, and there were still uh, avalanche fields. We couldn't even get to the base to do a summit because an avalanche had occurred like That's two crazy. days beforehand. Yeah. Uh, in the fall, every year is different. In some years, the fall can be mild with temperatures reaching the seventies during the day until late September. The weather changes quickly, and once the first heavy snow falls in the mountains which is usually in October, the temperatures can bottom out in the single digits at night. And then lastly, in winter, it's pretty treacherous. Uh, the White River National Forest is home to 12 ski resorts, which attracts skiers and snowboarders from all around the world. It's good there, but not in the summits. Usually, temperatures can be quite cold in the evening, generally dropping to single-digit temperatures every clear night from late November to mid-February in the mountains. Daytime temperatures will often hit the 20s, but feel much warmer than on sunny days. Uh, types of animals... There are black bear, mountain lion, moose, bighorn sheep, elk, mule deer, red fox, uh, pine martens. I don't know what those are. What is a pine martin? Um, I, I'll look it up. Yeah, look talking. it up. I'm very interested in what a pine martin is. Uh, bats, black-footed ferrets, uh, which are endangered, and the lynx, which are endangered. There's a lot of bald eagles, golden eagles, and the great horned owl. So the pine martin <clears throat> looks like uh, it's like a rodent-type thing. It's... Uh, um, it looks like one of those things you see in Africa that pop out of the holes in the ground, the meerkats. Oh, uh, uh, meerkat. I was yeah. going to ask if it was like a marmot. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> okay. Yeah. A meerkat marmot, just a, like a squirrely, a mountain squirrel. <laughs> yeah. It looks, it doesn't look like a squirrel, but okay. Yeah. I'm not even looking at it. You're looking we're, at we're it. We're going to start the new controversy about, yep, uh, now we're going to get in trouble. Meerkats and Martins. <laughs> yeah. We're past bears. Yeah, we're off bears now. We'll be in trouble about something else. Uh, the terrain is very rugged and extremely dangerous. The Maroon Bell Snowmass Wilderness encompasses uh, 183.8,000 acres and spans the Gunnison and White River National Forest. The majority of the area is within the White River National Forest, which has elevations ranging from 9,000 to 14,000 feet. There are more than 100 miles of trails for foot and horse travel through extremely rugged terrain. There are six peaks that rise above 14,000 feet that draw mountaineers to the challenge themselves on this rugged terrain. These peaks are among the most difficult to scale in the state, and caution and skill are advised. I remember reading about this because we talked about when we went summiting. Yeah. And it was basically, do you do this all the time? Yeah. Are you from the area? If not, you need to be guided or just don't do it. So, yeah. So we didn't do it because we're not dumb. Yeah, I think didn't you you were planning a, a hike where we were going to have to go over the knife's edge. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I saw videos of him like, ooh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still going to do that one. <laughs> that one apparently is a little less dangerous than these. 
Yeah. It's in the same uh, wilderness, but it's different peaks than the Maroon Bells. Maroon Bells are actually more technical than that. Yeah, well, and I you'll get into this in just a second in your description of the area, but the National Forest Service actually has a, a sign-up warning hikers and climbers of the dangers of the Maroon Bells peaks. Yep. Um, so they're very dangerous. Yeah, and that's a part of it. They look so beautiful. People want to tackle it. And yeah. it's just, it's, unless your technical skill is very high, you should not even attempt. Yeah. Uh, in total, the White River National Forest has over 10 peaks higher than 14,000 feet, with the highest peak in the forest, Castle Peak, topping out at 14,279 feet. It's amazing how many 14ers there are in Colorado. Was it like 52? I can't remember the exact number, but man, if you lived out there, I mean, it provides endless. Oh, yeah. Unless you know. you're crazy because there's some dudes that do it in like a month. <laughs> I would take my time. I know. That's, that's, I'm slowly kind of doing it yeah. involuntarily. I'm just trying new ones, but I'm not attempting to I, do them I would all. do like a long weekend for each peak. Yes, absolutely. And just kind of enjoy myself. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, the tree line in Colorado is generally between 11,000 and 12,000 feet, so it's pretty high. Yeah. Uh, so there will be areas on every peak where hikers and climbers will be completely exposed to the elements. So you still have... 2,000 feet of open nothing. Yeah, and Joe's talked about this on his uh, adventures out in Colorado. And, um, yeah, if you uh, you get caught up at 13,000, 14,000 feet in July during a thunderstorm or uh, in the winter during a snowstorm, it's going to be, uh, you, you know, it's going to be tough tough on you, and you're, you're going to want to try and get off of that mountain as quickly as you can. Yeah, I have, um, I'll look it up later. I have a video of the storm we were caught in. And we were hiding by a boulder, but before that, we were pretty close to a peak, yeah. and the peak got hit by lightning, and it was terrifying. It was so loud. <laughs> I bet. You see my face, I'm like, holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like, we got it, and we just get down next to a boulder and lay down, and the snow's coming down, and it was pretty wild. I mean, I was hiking in the Canadian Rockies years ago, and we were on a peak. Not We weren't at 14,000 feet. We were like eight or 9,000 feet, and we started hearing lightning off in the distance, and we were kind of like... All right, guys, uh, let's turn around. (laughs) (laughs) It's scary. Yeah, you don't want to be up there. You hear about mostly the people that get injured or killed are done so by lightning. If you're just hiking in the mountains and you start hearing that, you're like, okay, this this could be it because there's no trees. There's no nothing. It's me. So while Joe's looking up that video, I'll just read the sign that the National Forest Service has up uh, warning people about the Maroon Bells. So... Um, this is verbatim from the sign. I don't know exactly where it is. People that live out there probably know, um, know where it is, but it reads the beautiful maroon bells and their neighbor pyramid peak have claimed many lives in the past few years. There are no extreme technical climbs, but they are unbelievably deceptive. The rock is down sloping, rotten, loose, and unstable. It kills quickly and without warning. The snow fields are treacherous, poorly consolidated, and no place for a novice climber. The gullies are death traps. Expert climbers who did not know the proper routes have died on these peaks. Don't repeat their mistakes, for only rarely have these mountains given a second chance. So that's a pretty uh, pretty terrifying sign to see before you're going to go uh, climb and summit a mountain. <laughs> yeah. So, All right. absolutely. Joe has a video up here. I what do. What peak was this? So this was Long's Peak. Long's Peak. And what you'll see is, um, for That's those just in Colorado Springs. Uh, this, uh, I don't know exactly where it is. It's, you can find, it's, it's kind of, 
it might not even be technically right in this area, but it's an idea of what the weather can do in the mountains. Why I like this. Yeah. Um, in this particular video, you can see it's kind of cloudy. It's pretty clear. And when we started in the parking lot, it was actually sunny. Yeah. And it's how quick it can change. So I'm, uh, yeah, I am playing this now. So you can see it goes in there and it's, you can see the clouds rolling in. I did a time lapse of this actually because I saw it coming. And then before you know it, you're completely covered. Now we're in a blizzard. And you have visibility of like 40 feet. Yeah. And we're in the mountains right now, you know, laughing, joking. The snow's starting to come down pretty hard. And at this point, we're just kind of looking around, you know, taking a little bit of a break. And then you just hear a crack of lightning and we go hide behind this boulder. <laughs> it was it was a little, so you can see my buddy up way ahead. He's almost gone. So this yeah. is how you can get lost. You'll see a little flash. Yeah, I saw that. There, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, all right, uh, we need to go lay somewhere and get safe. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't even think it was going to be a thunderstorm because it's snowing. Yeah. But it was starting to blizzard so heavily, we just went and literally laid under this rock, and we're like, we, we're we not going to hike in this. We're yeah. going to get hit by lightning and get killed. I mean, that's great so. that that shelter, that cover was there. Um, yeah, if there wasn't a boulder, we'd be like just... Yeah, flat. doing what we talked about last episode. Uh, yep, exactly. Laying flat and hoping uh, you're not the tallest object. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. All right, where'd you leave off on? The scenic trail? Yeah, so you can start. Yeah. Okay, so on the Moon Creek Trail, uh, see, these are the easier hikes in the area. Start out at the outlet of Moon Lake, and you travel along Moon Creek. Uh, it's alpine, meadowy, uh, aspen forest, and rocky slopes, so it's about a 3.2-mile one-way trail. Uh, it's excellent place to spot wildlife such as mule deer, red fox, bighorn sheep, porcupines, variety of birds. Uh, and there is the Crater Lake Trail. This is the one that you get to really get the view of the maroon bells the best. Yeah. Uh, it's a 3.6-mile round-trip trail. Uh, rewards hikers with the breathtaking vistas of the bushy Aspen Woodlands and Crater Lake. Uh, you start at the Deadly Bells Kiosk uh, from the Maroon Lake Trail and then be prepared for a steep and rocky ascent cooler temperatures, and spontaneous thunderstorms. So it was a... Uh, so there are a lot of hikes you can do if you're not climbing the moon. Oh, levels. absolutely. So that one we just... You throw on a backpack with yeah. some sandwiches. It's a day hike. It's it's not easy. Yeah. You know, it's kind of... You feel it in your in your quads a little bit. You're going up up and down hills and stuff. Yeah. But there are kids on the trail. There's to, It's a touristy trail. Yeah. So when we talked about it being very hazardous and dangerous, we're more specifically talking about the climbing portion of the maroon bells. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of cool hiking in this area, I think, um, I don't know if I have it written down, but there's a ton of hiking trails in the white route, the, in this national forest. Um, so I'll, I'll just jump right into character profile. Yes, go for it. Um, so like we said, uh, the gentleman's name that went missing was David Cook. He went missing on, uh, September 20th, 2016, his remains have still not been found. He was a male age, uh, 49. Um, he was five foot nine. We don't really have a, we don't have a lot of descriptions of him. Um, he had brown hair, hazel eyes. Um, he was spotted on the mountain wearing cat or he was spotted, I believe in the parking lot the second day wearing khaki pants, long sleeve, black shirt with, uh, the word Burton on it. Uh, blue helmet and a gray jacket. Um, like we said, his experience in the wilderness and in Colorado, uh, very experienced. He uh, was considered an accomplished mountaineer, summoning over 50 peaks in Colorado. And he's also a former U.S. Marine. Uh, and he lives in Al- he lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So uh, it's safe to say, and everything I read, 
He was incredibly fit, uh, very skilled, and uh, very skilled at technical climbing. And, um, you know, this is one of these, this is the kind of guy that you wouldn't expect to make mistakes while climbing. Um, so that's part of the reason why this case is so uh, puzzling. Um, when I get in the timeline, we'll kind of uh, get into some concerns family had about what he was doing that those two days that were kind of out of character a okay. little bit for him. Okay. So, um, and then finally, I think we're just going to, uh, you know, people involved really, you might hear this name a few times, Maureen Cook, um, uh, Maureen Cook. She's the wife of Dave, David, and uh, there, he also had three kids. And there's actually, at the end of the timeline, there's something really cool the family has done since his disappearance, and I'm going to go into it and give a shout-out to their website because I think it's a it's a really cool idea, and um, I won't spoil any of it now. You're going to have to listen all the way to the end to hear about it. Okay. <laughs> so uh, with that done, Joe is going to uh, give a shout-out to this episode's sponsor. Mike, our next partner, has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because, as many of you know, I got into kickboxing and was feeling slow and sluggish on training days. I was taking more supplements than I could count, and nothing was helping. One of the fighters at my gym recommended Athletic Greens AG1 Daily Health Drink, and I have never felt better. One scoop of AG1 in the morning has me ready to take on Mike Tyson by the time I get to the gym. One serving of AG1 contains 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that support better sleep, quality, recovery, mental clarity, and alertness, and all things very important in the world of combat fighting. Best of all, it costs less than $3 a day, which from my own experience is cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself. For less than a cup of Starbucks, you can make an investment in your own health that I can personally vouch for. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Yeah, so thank you to Athletic Greens and to everyone listening. If you really want to help the show out, um, they they will advertise more on our podcast if um, you know enough people listening sign if you up. buy their product, <laughs> <laughs> which is basically the premise of how advertising works. But uh, I will say, uh, me and Mike actually review the advertisements we do because we actually get, uh, because we're getting more viewers, people are reaching out to us and we try the products before we do it. So this is, that's le- not fake. This is legitimately a product I use. I love it. It it It's one of the few ones that I've taken on a daily basis Yeah, and I don't get sick of it. Yeah. And it actually makes me feel better. I'm getting all my vitamins and nutrients. I don't take a ton of pills anymore. I just do this one scoop. It's great. And I go on with my day and I'm working out and I feel like I have a lot more energy. So I do highly recommend this product. Yeah. So thank you again to Athletic Greens. <clears throat> so I'm going to jump right into the timeline here. And 
Uh, it starts on September 19th, 2016 at about 11 a.m. This is a Monday. So Cook arrives in the Elk Mountains area of Colorado to hike the infamous Maroon Bells. Uh, it's two peaks, Maroon Peak, which comes in at about 14,163 feet, and North Maroon Peak, which comes in at about 14,000 feet. So Cook's plan was to hike uh, Maroon Bells on uh, the 19th, and then he was so he was going to do both those peaks in one day, and then he was going to f- climb Pyramid Peak on the 20th, which is another roughly 14,000-foot mountain. Like we said earlier, the peaks are located in the Maroon Bells Snowmass Wilderness area of the White River National Forest. So... Yeah, look at how aggressive these look. That's Maroon Peak and the North Maroon Peak. Yeah, it looks... It's super rocky. Yeah. That's technical climbing. Oh, for sure. And like we said, the um, the the sign from the National Forest Service talks about this isn't like hiking Half Dome or something. The, they, they call the rock rotten. Which, oh, yeah, it's all scree. Yeah, which means like your, your anchor's if you're not anchoring in the right spot, could come right out. And, or, and you can be good at anchoring, and yeah. it can come out. Like, you have to exercise very good That's why they control. say even very experienced technical climbers, if they don't know the correct route up the mountain, will probably die. Uh, so <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. I mean, that's... That's not even a warning. That's just, hey, you're not going to make it. That sign was terrifying. The only other time I remember seeing a sign um, that was kind of terrifying was in Hawaii when we were on the Kalau Trail, they had a sign warning people about the riptides, and it basically said, "If you go swimming on this beach, you will die." Like, <laughs> yeah, I, and they're just yeah, like just don't do it. They're just like don't do it. Yeah, even like a you know a Michael Phelps goes swimming out there, they're not going to be able to swim back in. And it has everything has to do with how the the beaches were situated on the island of Kauai on the north end, and how it interacts with the currents in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, different episode, but. Yeah, they're um, saying a permit's required to even access it by a vehicle now. It says for I'm on the All Trail site for 2021. They're saying you need a permit, and they have a link towards it. So yeah. they might be doing that to limit the amount of people that are going to attempt it just so they don't have to go on rescue missions. Yeah, so uh, Monday, uh, his first day hiking, he planned to go up South Maroon and do the Traverse and then head back down North Maroon. Um, family states Cook started his hike late in the morning which they said was very uncharacteristic of uh, his hikes. He usually started at, you know, 5 a.m. And this is something Joe and I have done on a lot of hikes, uh, especially in the more popular parks. You try to get there before the sun gets up. Oh, yeah. I'm Um, I'm even reading some of these, and I I won't go to all of them. They're saying the honest truth, this was borderline torture for me. I'm a very experienced hiker, but between the loose rocks – constant route finding at the top and extreme steep and slippery declines. This was unlike any other hike I've ever done before. Yeah. So, and that's, there's a, I won't keep going on, but it's a bunch of people saying like, holy cow, we underestimated, did not check out the reviews, but it's a lot of people saying there's, and when you're on an all trail site, especially these pro users, I'm a pro user. When they say things like that, it's not just like somebody stumbled upon it. These are people who know yeah. what they're doing. Typically, typically, I'm yeah. saying that with quotes. <laughs> Air quotes. Yeah, they could they could be new people. Yeah, but they're saying, "Hey, I'm experienced. This is dangerous." Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and like I said, Joe and I usually we've tried to start hikes in more popular parks in the early morning, sometimes before the sun come up comes up, mainly uh, to a beat the the traffic on the trail and b 
to beat the weather, especially if we're doing a, you know, a mountain hike, you kind of want to, you want to get up there like by noon and start heading back. In yeah. The storms rolling in the afternoon. Yeah. So, um, that, that was the goal. Be off peak yeah. by the afternoon. Like you want to get to the summit by like 11 would be ideal. Yeah. Noon at the latest. And if you're there at noon, don't dilly dally. Yeah. So we don't know why he started out late, but for whatever reason, um, it's it's unusual. This guy was so experienced, and this is probably one of the more technical climbs he's ever done. And he starts out late. I don't under I don't know why. There's no reason given why he would have started late. But mm-hmm. you know, could have that could that have factored into um, what happened to him? So weather conditions on South Maroon, uh, as reported by other climbers, it, there is poor visibility with three to six inches of sustained snow and some snowdrifts almost waist deep. So. Uh, that not, can be dangerous on not, a mountain too. Yeah, not ideal weather conditions uh, during his hike. So it is now uh, September nineteenth, twenty sixteen, at one forty p.m. Cook was identified by a hiker on South Maroon, halfway up the tundra slope. Um, according to the person that spotted him, he was reported to be moving slowly, which again, the family found this um, strange because they said. He was extremely fit. He was, uh, you know, he's he's summited 50 peaks in Colorado. He's a former U.S. Marine, um, very fit guy, and he would usually do these hikes pretty fast. He would be one of those guys you would see almost running up the trail. I've seen those guys all the time oh hiking. Oh, my gosh. They're yeah. almost annoying because I wish I was that <laughs> I fast. I wish I was that good. Yeah, and they don't even look like they're tired sometimes. It's yeah. Like, come on, man. And I'm breaking a sweat. Yeah, I'm like, you know what? I don't live here. I can't do that. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, another odd little tidbit of information about uh, Cook, uh, you know, something he just wasn't moving as quickly as, uh, you know, he normally would. Um, another strange note that I'll, I'll make here is I was on the forum uh, 14ers, uh, Joe Joe's a member on that forum, and they had a, there's a lot several different threads about David Cook. This is kind of for the you know the climbing community in Colorado, uh, and the the lady who reached out to us with this case suggestion mentioned that um, this case was talked about a lot amongst the climbers at the time. Um, it 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 kind of like shook the community because he was such a good climber and experienced and. A lot of the other climbers who hiked this area the same day he was hiking did not remember ever seeing him going up or coming down. So we have that one. That's interesting. Yeah, we have that one reported viewing, you know, sighting of him at 1.40 p.m., but that no one else saw him. So um, very strange. Uh, so uh, it is now September 19th, 2016, between 4 and 6 p.m., um, Cook's cell phone pings towers in Crest Butte and Aspen multiple times over a two-hour period, um, but actually, you know, further down on during the search, authorities could not actually identify the exact location of which peak the ping was coming from. And now, this is important only because he is spotted the next day, so um, they do have another record of where he was, but. Um, as I get into the search and rescue, and that's like confirmed, like they're like, oh yeah, we we do know he was here on the the next day. Yeah, so I'll get into okay. who confirmed it, but uh, it would have been helpful during the search if they would have known because they didn't know exactly what he did those two days. They don't know. I mean, so they know 
where he was at 1.40 p.m. Uh, he was spotted on South Maroon. But they don't really know which peaks he hit because he didn't have a clear itinerary. And if they could have gotten a, a, a better cell phone ping, they could have known, like, okay, so at 6 p.m. he was on North Maroon. Yeah. And so, for those watching, this one is South Maroon. That's the taller of the two peaks. Yeah. And then along this saddle, it brings you to North Maroon. Yeah. So, um, so like I said, his cell phone did ping a, a multiple times between that two-hour period on the 19th. Uh, many local climbers in the area said these peaks get very spotty cell reception, with some areas on the peaks allowing climbers the ability to actually send out texts and pictures, while other spots on the mountain have no signal. Um, and, Joe, this was very fascinating. This came up on the forum I was reading about uh, Dave. Um, I've never heard of this technology used in searches before, and it w- was not used on this search. But um, it, it seems to be a new technology that probably will get utilized more and more in the future. It's, um, it's called ASSA Search and Rescue System. So basically what it is is a mobile cell phone tower that can be carried on the back of a searcher, and it actually allows the search and rescue teams to locate phones, uh, make voice calls, and send text messages to people that are missing. So this feeds right into when we say always bring your cell phone with you when you're hiking. Well, now especially. Yeah. So this is ASSA. ASSA. Uh, sorry, I have, A-A-A-S-A. I have a link in our notes. Okay. I'm going um, to look in, I'm going to pull that up just for the, yeah. Watching. So it's a really cool technology. And, uh, you know, this was back in 2016, so maybe it's more wild, wild, widely used. <laughs> <laughs> it's wildly, used. wildly. So, um, it's just the, the technology advances in search and rescue over the years have gotten so much better. Um, which part of, it makes it kind of strange, you know, some of these disappearances where people are still not found. Um, okay, and it's yeah, pretty so, compact. I mean, it's yeah, that's really cool. So they, you just okay. So the person's got it on their person as they're hiking, and it's a remote cell tower, yeah, basically. So if remote, there are yeah. any cell phones in the area, you get emergency connection, basically. Yeah, that's really really cool. Yeah, and they basically wear the receiver on their back. Um, so. Cool technology. Just a little sidebar there. I I think uh, we'll probably you know have cases in the future where um, this technology is deployed. Uh, so now it's uh, the evening of September nineteenth. It was reported by the family that Cook had purchased a camping permit for the Silver Bells on Monday night. He would have been camping in a yellow Big Agnes tent with a white fly. And a side note: I actually own that tent. It's a very good tent. Um, <laughs> So shout out to Big Agnes. Yeah, if you want to sponsor us. Um, so yeah, we love your tents. Would like to love to do a review of the newest, <laughs> the newest uh, single and maybe three man. Yeah, <laughs> a couple singles and then maybe one three man. We'll do some reviews. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so we don't have any confirmation that he actually uh, camped there that night. We just know that his plan was to set up camp because he had gotten a permit to do it. Um, so. It is now the 20th of 2016, which is a Tuesday morning. A parking lot attendant, which was a U.S. Forest Service employee, uh, reported seeing Cook Tuesday morning between 7 and 8 a.m. near Maroon Lake. Uh, his map for Pyramid Peak was still in his car. The attendant said Cook didn't have crampons with him but did have micro spikes. And I, another little sidebar here for people 
you know, we say different terms of things and a lot of people listen that don't hike. So I just wanted to kind of briefly describe the difference between micro spikes and crampons so people know what they are when we're talking about them. So micro spikes are basically little spikes that you wear on the bottom of your shoes or hiking boots. Um, they're ideal for more, you know, flat terrain. They're chains with small spikes that are placed around the footwear. They're worn in icing conditions on relatively flat terrain. They're yeah. small, easy. You'll see people wearing them in like town here in yeah. Wisconsin. Yeah, even like ice fishing and yeah, stuff when you're walking on like frozen lakes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're very transportable and low maintenance. Crampons, on the other hand, are for icy slopes and technical climbs. And I just pulled some up, and you can see why. Look at those. Yeah, they're, they're usually very sharp. Yeah, they're worn on you know for high angle slopes uh, for general or technical mountaineering. Uh, there, it's a whole foot like frame for your boot, um, and it's not something that you would just use on an icy trail. The, those spikes are, you know, that's that's for when you're climbing up. Yep, the there, side of him. You can see this guy standing on the side of ice. He kicked yeah. his. It's so sharp. He's kicked his toe in. He's able to climb up. So that is the difference between micro spikes and crampons. Just I figured. Yeah, here oh. here are some micro spikes. You can tell you're not climbing any mountains in these. No, <laughs> it's it's just it's to good give you for traction. Tra- yeah, it's great for traction on ice. But you know that's and a good example. That's like thirty three dollars in the REI. These are like starting at a hundred. For I, cheap ones. I wish I would have had micro spikes in the Tetons when we crossed the snowfields because I felt oh, the yeah, whole time like I was going to fall. <laughs> um, so, uh, so this sighting by the Forest Service employee would be the last confirmed sighting of Cook. And Maroon Lake's right off the parking lot. So this yeah. is what I was telling you. This is the, the visitor center. There's Maroon Lake. Yeah. And if you want to go on the longer hike. Where is Pyramid Peak from there? I uh, have to see because here is Crater Lake, and that's a pretty difficult hike just to get to Crater Lake. Yeah, and that's where we went. That's where I, if you saw the drone footage, um, you can log on and see the video. I also have it on my personal YouTube. We'll, page. we'll link to it in the yeah. show notes. But that's where I got the shot of the Maroon Bells. Yeah, and then through that valley, I'll search uh, Pyramid Peak while you're talking. Yeah. So, like I said, this would be the last confirmed sighting of Cook. Uh, Cook was reportedly also seen talking to a female with blonde braided hair past her shoulders wearing a climbing helmet, and she may have been in a company of up to six other climbers. Uh, so, uh, Okay, it's right across from Maroon Bells. Okay. So it's like the other it's mountain close. range. Oh, yeah, you can. It's there's Maroon Peak, here's Pyramid Peak. Okay. Um, so... Uh, and I, you know, authorities, I remember doing this research, were trying to find this woman that he was talking to to get information from her, but uh, I don't think they were successful in locating her. Um, so here is a fellow climber's comments on the conditions of Pyramid Peak uh, that this, at the same time that Cook would have been doing it. So he wrote, I did Pyramid on uh, Monday, and there was a very small amount of snow between the saddle and the ridge. Later, I got off the route due to goats being overhead and climbed a good deal of the north face, ascending the green wall too high. It looked like it would go, and the goats were worrying me, so I kept going. I held a decent amount of snow and ice and made for the sketchiest climbing I've done with all the loose rock and exposed uh, exposure factored in. I second not attempting this mountain with fresh snow uh, on the rock. It's not fun. Uh, I'm pretty fast, and it took a long time, so I was very glad to have uh, have made it. It's a physically and mentally draining mountain between route finding, elevation gain, 
and the 15-plus microwave size holds I tested that were ready to go. The slope from the amphitheater to the saddle would also be pretty terrifying to g- going up and down with solidified, most, uh, solidified moisture. The mountain is a serious challenge in perfect conditions. So, yeah, look at that. So here's Pyramid Peak. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. There's this. They're not. You're not coming up this way. It's sheer face. So this <laughs> yeah. is the saddle. And when you zoom up, yeah, it's just very dramatic drop on each side. Yeah. So if it's snow covered, you get those false snow shelves. Yeah. Where you could just step and like right through nothing. Yeah. Because they're piling up. So it can be very dangerous if it's covered in snow. If you don't have a partner and you're not tethered to each other. Yeah, so the general consensus of... This the, looks even more... Well, this works, This looks worse than Maroon Peak. There's, yeah. like, way more aggressive drops. But, okay. yeah, so the general consensus from other hikers and climbers while Cook was here was the conditions were less than ideal. And even if you have a dry mountain, blue sky, this could be one of the hardest cl- the climbs of your life. And it, it sounds like Cook was attempting it in less than ideal conditions. So it is now the 20th, uh, September 20th, 2016, uh, Tuesday evening. This was when Cook was uh, first reported missing. So Cook is reported missing uh, by a woman when uh, she said he failed to check in. And I couldn't confirm this, but I would assume this would be his wife. Um, But I do not have confirmation on that. So, Aspen Search and Rescue, along with the Pitkin County Sheriff's Office, were the first groups notified. Volunteers from Mountain Rescue Aspen located Cook's car about noon Wednesday and found a receipt inside indicating he had arrived at the Maroon Bells entrance station about 11 a.m., according to the official statement. So based on that information and the possibility that Cook's climbing plans may have been delayed because of his late arrival, Mountain Rescue officials decided to not immediately start the search. So this is very interesting. Um, a lot of the cases we've been doing recently, the search and rescue operation kicks off almost instantaneously as they're reported yeah, typically. And But we have covered several cases where if search and rescue doesn't have a like a even a five-mile radius, well, less than that, but if they don't have a, a decent understanding of where you might be, they're not going to necessarily start the search off right away. So okay. um, unfortunately in this situation, the the search and rescue teams waited uh, because they didn't have good information on where he could be, and with the finite resources of you know a search team, they... So the last place that they saw him was this pyramid peak potentially? Uh, in the parking lot. In the, okay, so not okay. So that was the last time he was seen by anybody um, okay. that the authorities know of. Uh, so it is now. So he's reported missing on September twentieth, and it's now September twenty second, which is a Thursday morning. This is when the search kind of kicks off officially and gets into high gear. Um, a helicopter from Grand Junction and another from uh, Gypsum were deployed to search for Cook. But unfortunately, high winds forced one of the helicopters to fly home, though the other one was able to stick around. Um, the other one was able to stick around the north and south Maroon Peaks as well as the Pyramid Peak until about 4 p.m., uh, but they did not find any uh, evidence of Cook. Um, then on September 23rd, and this is the actual oh, yeah. footage. I'll play this while you're talking. This is 
Uh, Mike put this up. This is actual footage from the search helicopter. Yeah, this wasn't on. This was from October 11th, so it was about a month, a couple weeks later. But look at that. You can see in. Uh, oh yeah, there's a lot of snow up there. How rugged this terrain is. It would make it really tough for searchers on the ground to search. I mean, a lot of this is done basically via helicopter. Um. Because of this terrain. I this mean, is another reason why I wear bright colored clothing. When you're looking at the side of the mountain, especially with snow there, yeah. if he was wearing blue or red, you would see that very easily against this rock. Or I, like yellow. Or, like, or yellow. like bright green. You'll see a lot. But look at how treacherous that is. Holy cow. Yeah, they were not that snow covered when I went. And honestly, if I, I was climbing something like this, I'd have a personal locator be- beacon on me. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's not to say that if you fell, you would be able to activate it, but... Um, what a beautiful mountain. It's really cool. It's very beautiful. I wish I, I was a very experienced climber because it, it looks Honestly, cool. just going there and, like... Watching other people climb. Not even watching other... <laughs> just being there. Like, being at the base of the mountain was just so awe-inspiring. So, yeah. like, anyone... That, and getting to the base, super easy. I mean, it's it's effort, but it's you can do it. It's a day hike. Yeah. You can bring kids and do it. Highly recommend it. Yeah. So, All right, keep going. Um, so, unfortunately, on the 23rd of September, the search for Cook was temporarily called off due to weather conditions. So, obviously, the whole theme of this disappearance was the conditions were less than ideal. Uh, and, obviously, it got bad enough that the, the search completely had to be shut down for you know several hours. Uh, so, now let's fast forward to... September 24th. Yeah, it wasn't snowing. I wonder if it was like strong winds. And that's why one of the helicopters, if it was an older one, maybe couldn't handle it. Flying yeah. helicopters in the mountains is super dangerous. Yeah. You just get like random updrafts and like the weirdness. Yeah. So I you, mean, can, you can get blown into the side of a mountain really easily. In the, uh, in the episode we did on the Nevada Triangle, Steve Fawcett was the theory of why his plane went down was uh, some kind of updraft off the mountain. Yeah, it's it's in the video I'll share where we hiked it, um, the one with the storm. Yeah, I do a time lapse at the base of we're on Long's Peak, but we're in what's called Boulder Field, and you can see uh, a time lapse of this cloud hits the mountain and just shoots straight up in the air. It doesn't come to us because the mountain redirects the wind. So you can imagine if you're flying in a machine that requires downdraft and things like that to operate, if all of a sudden you just get blasted with like a vertical wind. It, well, and you're not ready for it. Yeah, it requires some kind of, uh, you know, from flying a lot. It requires like you knowing kind of consistency in your conditions, like sudden gusts of wind around really high peaks. And I mean, that's not a recipe for uh, no that's not keeping a good. plane in the air. And, and any anyone who's traveled on an airliner who's felt, um, you know, like wind shear or downdrafts, like. When you, I, I've had a couple flights where we're coming in the land, and you kind of get weightless in your seat for a few seconds. Oh yeah, when you have like a really it strong, picks, it picks you up a little bit. When really you're not strong expecting it. downdraft yeah. that yeah. like pushes the plane down. So, um, so and this, then he goes, uh, <laughs> "That was completely normal." Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Milwaukee. Welcome to Milwaukee. <laughs> okay, go on. Um, so, uh. It's now 9-24-2016, so we have a statement from the uh, Mountain Rescue Aspen. They wrote, uh, Good morning to all. We are about to begin our next operational period, which includes reviewing and revising our plans. 
Part of this process is establishing where the person is not or is less likely to be allowing the teams to focus resources in likely areas. Thank you to each each of you who have contributed uh, even the smallest detail as we try to narrow the expansive search area. For those uh, those of you who are out there climbing this week, keep thinking about what you saw and who you met and what you did not see. Sometimes people think, well, I didn't see anything, so have nothing to contribute. Um, if you were... Th- were where somewhere sorry if you were somewhere in this search area and saw nothing please let us know um so they then go on to release a, another statement on September 25th of 2016 um this is so this is an interesting um statement so while the search was going on people uh, climbers in the area and locals and they were wondering why they didn't have any dog teams out here. And so I would imagine you couldn't get him anywhere near would matter. Yeah. I mean, uh, if he's up there, they're not, you're not getting the dogs up there. So the, the, uh, mountain, guess. yeah, mountain rescue Aspen actually released a special statement on why they uh, didn't have dog teams in this search. And they go, they go on to write, uh, the train is class three, four, and some five. And that is on the worn down, cleared off, packed down route paths. These terrain classifications require three to four points of contact much of the time. Class 5 terrain, while tie-in is not required to scale, the consequences of losing your grip or footing are very high, and that is all in the best conditions. Move off route uh, or chasing a bad Karen, and you will quickly find yourself in Class 4 or 5 terrain. Off route, the terraces, some 10 to 20 feet wide, are littered with loose, unconsolidated, untested terrain being held in place by gravity. Where the train is not terraced, one would often be in small, loose, broken, unconsolidated rock pieces, otherwise called poker chips, with a downward sloping angle of ten of fifteen to thirty degrees. Sometimes oh, I'm getting like, uh, I'm getting, uh, <laughs> uh, like I'm getting like sweaty knuckles. I know. So movement into and within the off route areas of these mountains is not to be taken lightly or without great deal of suspicion that it will move or it will not hold. If you if you are off route and you uh, off route and do not create rockfall or encounter a moving rock. Or sorry, I butchered that. So uh, this was from one of the searchers posted this on the forum. Uh, they're basically saying that if you're if you're off route and you don't create a rockfall, consider it a bonus. Uh, they go on to say, uh, search dogs investigate smells. They want and are specifically trained to follow their noses, either trailing, following a ground scent, or air scenting following a scent carried in the air, typically in the direction away from its origin, a scent cone. Um, scent cone processes are straight line in nature, the dog wandering side to side, back and forth, to establish where the scent is and is not. This would not be a, a safe process out there for the dog. Searcher or other climbers anywhere near the area, this process would likely take the dogs off route trying to follow their nose or establish the boundaries of the scent cone to its origin. Dogs possibly create dogs could possibly create rockfall problems while trying to maintain their footing, cutting or injuring their pads of their feet in addition to falling down the mountain sides themselves. That's in dry conditions. Add in three to ten inches of snow and some ice. See, that's I, that's how I knew that one guy who commented probably a regular because he said he abandoned his climb because goats were above him. Yeah, and that's super dangerous. Yeah, when like that's what I say. If you're on the mountain, don't throw rocks off. No, because you can trigger some stuff and. You can get a ten pound rock, and once it starts rolling, uh, it's it will just 
the kinetic force it will create as it rolls downhill and then it could hit something. You can kill somebody. It's insane. Yeah. Um, so, it, so these are very, that's one of the most detailed explanations of, um, you know, a dog team, like kind of what they're supposed to do and why they weren't used in a specific search that we've read in all the cases. I like that visualization of, the, a visualization of the smell cone, like how they track back and forth to yeah, basically I, narrow it like a funnel towards the scent. Yeah. I didn't know that's why they did that. No, we do need to get uh, some a search a search and rescue professional on here that specializes in dog teams to kind of, I'd love to do a whole episode on how how it works, how they conduct a search with dog teams. It's all super interesting to me. Um, yeah, we've only done one. We had the guy from Colorado, Rock, uh, Rocky Mountain Search and Rescue. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember his Dave name. Pisk- Pisk- Dave something. Yeah. Um, Haskin. Dave pa- Haskin. Yeah, Dave Haskin. Um, so if you have not heard that, we have a we have his inter- full interview up somewhere. Yeah, he was on the search and rescue for one of the stories we did, but we did the full interview because he talks about what it's like to be in SAR, and he was extremely dis- descriptive. It was yeah. a great interview. So definitely look back, uh, and I'll, I'll while you're talking, so I'll look up the episode number just so that it was a, it was one to. of our oldies. It was an oldie, <laughs> an oldie but goodie, oldie but goodie. Uh, so we fast forward now to nine twenty seven, uh, twenty sixteen. We've got a lot of statements from law enforcement, which is uh, great. We don't always have these details about. Uh, the search and rescue operation. So the Pitkin County Sheriff's uh, Office released the statement. The operations continue Wednesday for missing Albuquerque, New Mexico climber David Cook with a sizable ground search. Incident Commander Grant Janke with the Pitkin County Sheriff's Office met with rescue leaders from Mountain Rescue Aspen on Tuesday to take part in the development of a search plan for Wednesday. Uh, Approximately 20 personnel from the search and rescue teams are scheduled to begin their operations at or shortly after first light on Wednesday, rescuers from Alpine Search and Rescue, Summit Summit County, Rocky Mountain Rescue, Vail Search and Rescue, Garfield County Search and Rescue, and Gunnison County Search and Rescue are all scheduled to participate in the ground search. Additionally, Flight for Life Colorado will take part in the ground search operations, inserting ground team members into the Maroon Bells Wilderness. The use of the Flight for Life uh, helicopter will expedite the time it takes for search personnel to reach and search area the areas to reduce the risk of um, personnel traversing snow-covered terrain. So a lot of different groups involved, and we've heard this on other other cases where they utilize helicopters to get the searchers into the area so they don't have to spend you know half a day hiking in. Um, so very interesting. Um, the Sheriff's Department goes on to state on the 28th that they've had – they had upwards of 50 people participating in a significant ground search at this time. Uh, they still had not seen any evidence of Cook, and uh, I think they said a total of 47 people were involved with the search on the 28th. From um, they actually, and they did have four individual dog teams and two horses with riders uh, were used to search trails and areas surrounding the bases of the the peaks. So. Um, the official search, uh, was suspended on September 29th. So it started on the 22nd, uh, officially ended on the 29th. Uh, the Pitkin County Sheriff's Department said after eight days of searching for the missing Albuquerque climber, David Cook, with no results, the Pitkin County Sheriff's Office is suspending the search. Uh, the incident management team conducted multiple ground and air searches over eight days following Mr. Cook's disappearance. It's the third episode. 
Wow, it's 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 there's this bonus third episode with yeah. the with the interview. Wow. So yeah, they searched a uh, huge presence out there for eight days and found they didn't find him, no gear, nothing. Um, so uh, very strange, but uh, in this kind of rugged terrain, uh, when we get into theories, I think. This one is a little more clear cut than our previous episode with Barbara Bollock. Uh, so, an uh, interesting thing happened on a, about a year later. So, on five May twenty eighth of twenty seventeen, a man en route to attempt the bell cord on the Maroon Bells discovered a body, leading to speculation that the deceased was Dave Cook. Authorities at the time had not released the identity of the recovered body, but said the individual sustained serious head and leg injuries, um, but they were unable to determine if the person was actually climbing one of the peaks. It later turned out to not be Dave Cook, and it was identified as Jeffrey Bushrow, a 27-year-old from Tucson, Arizona. So um, they... It was a different person who went missing on the mountain. Yeah. So um, it's dangerous. Yeah. So, and you know, the search... They actually searched for Cook again in August on August 16th of 2017. So search teams from Mountain Rescue, Aspen, Garfield County Search and Rescue, Welk, West Elk Search and Rescue, and Search and Rescue Dogs of the United States continued to search. Uh, canine search teams were inserted into the uh, Frevert and Lost Remuda basins via helicopter around 6 a.m. on Saturday, August 12th. Uh, Frevert Basin is on the west and south side of Maroon Peak, while the Lost Ramuda Basin is on the west side of North Maroon Peak. Additionally, ground teams searched the area of the East Maroon Trail as well as the Minnehaha Gulch uh, and near Crater Lake in the area known as the Garbage Chute. Uh, searching, start, searches, searching started around 7 a.m. on Saturday and lasted approximately nine hours. Uh, the searchers were out of the field by about 3.30 p.m., and unfortunately no additional clues about Cook's location were discovered. Uh, they went back in on 8.16 of 2017 and searched for the entire day in the same area, didn't find anything. They also had additional teams in there from uh, Rocky Mountain Rescue Group, uh, Vail Mountain Rescue Group, and Ed. Uh, from Edwards, Colorado, and Colorado Forensic Canines from Bailey, Colorado. I wonder what triggered that. I wonder if they're, like, utilizing it as a training, because it's a year later. Yeah, I don't it, know. It if... must have been, like, cadaver dogs. Yeah, I don't want to sound grim or anything, but I'm just... Well, no, this yeah. is the first time we've heard of them doing, like, a mounted search again. Yeah. Like, a year later. Yeah, I don't know if maybe the discovery of that body in May... Oh, okay. maybe triggered them like, hey, like hey, should, let's check this area. Let's check it again. Um, yeah. I couldn't find the reasons why this search was kicked off again. Um, so that was really the last time an official search was done for uh, Cook. Um, so this is what I was talking about um, in the beginning of the episode that the family started this website in. Nine September 19th of 2021. Uh, to honor Dave's memory and those who risk their lives searching for missing people in the wilderness, Cook's wife, Maureen, and his three kids launched a website called Dave Gives Back to promote mountain safety education and fundraise through the sales of T-shirts, tank tops, baseball hats, and water bottles on the website davegivesback.org. Uh, 100% of the proceeds are going to search and rescue organizations. 
Um, so the merchandise is emblazoned with uh, the campaign's logo, a depiction of a hiker against the silhouette of the Maroon Bells. So that's really cool. Joe's got it pulled up here. Um, that's a really cool idea to honor, you know, Dave and to provide resources to these search and rescue groups that these people literally risk their lives going out searching for, you know, people that are missing in the wilderness. And, uh, you know, it costs a lot of money. You know, some of it's, you know, funded through taxpayer money, but a lot of it is funded through donations. Um, and mo- most of these people are volunteers. They're not even Yeah, a lot of them have it. full-time jobs that they have to yeah. stop and families they have to leave to go search for, for these people. Yeah, so, so I mean, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing that they're doing. And um, if anyone's listening, you know, go to uh, DaveGivesBack.org and, you know, buy a couple of their, you know, a couple of the things they're selling on their website. And 100% of those proceeds are going to go to uh, search and rescue organizations. So uh, one final note before we get into theories. I think theories will go pretty quick on this one. Um, one interesting thing that they utilized on this search was they took thousands of pictures of the terrain and they actually crowdsourced the, the, you know, the analysis of the pictures. So I think they said, I think I read they had over 25,000 people looking at different pictures from this search. Um, I saw some of the pictures, you know, they had circled, you know, spots on the mountain and they'd, you know, highlight things. And then they had experts then look at pictures that people flagged in detail. Uh, And then they also ran those pictures through an AI program. That's awesome. I'm so glad when they do that because there's like internet sleuths like are so good. Yeah. Um, So I, I, I think that's such a genius idea to do. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. They unfortunately didn't find um, anything related to cook. Uh, So, um, jumping right into theories, I'll just, I'll just tell you, I think obviously something happened to him on his way up to pyramid peak. Okay. I think this terrain is so incredibly rugged and the, the weather conditions are very poor on this hike. I think he probably slipped. Maybe he got turned around, went up the wrong route and he fell somewhere, you know, up high enough that ground crews can't can't get to on foot. So now you're relying entirely on someone in a helicopter trying to find you. And yeah, for anyone watching the video, you can see how I mean shaky it is. Granted, they're zooming in, but it's it's tough. You're looking for a needle in a haystack. And if he went off route, like took took a route that normal hikers and climbers don't take, people may not find his remains because. Uh, you're not the people that Nobody know the there. hike. Then no one's going to go up that route. Like, and you're yeah. not going to have just like day hikers, you know, bushwhacking on the side of this. Mountain. Yeah, very. I I don't I mean, think when we went, I didn't see a single person going up any of the peak routes. And no. there are, there are lots of people there, but they just go yeah. to see the lake. Uh, they go to see Maroon Lake, and then even less people go to Crater Lake. Yeah, and that's pretty easy. And that's where you have to go to just start either Pyramid or the Maroon Bells. Yeah, so. I think, unlike our previous episode, I think this one sadly probably was a, a fall of some kind due to the conditions, possibly due to not staying on the, the proper route up the mountain. Um, and he fell in an area that was not able to be searched by ground crews, and you're relying on you know helicopters to find. And 
uh, with the weather conditions, he could have been covered up in snow pretty quickly. Um, it would just be tough. And then, you know, the remains potentially could have been washed away in yeah. a rock fall, in an avalanche. Yeah, covered in scree. Covered in scree. I mean, uh, it's not like a normal national park where you have thousands of people, you know, stomping through easier parts of the park. Mm-hmm. Like, there may never be another person that climbs up past where his remains are, depending on where he fell. Yeah. It could be in a spot where no one ever goes because yeah. it would not make sense or you can't even get there. Yeah. Um, that's I, my theory. I, I, think, I'm i agreeing with you. Yeah. I think, um, just because and the thing that did is because he was experienced. Yep. Um, I trust he knew what he was doing. Um, so if it was an off trail when they talk about the snow, yeah, that's what gets me because if you're relying on Karen's to get through and from some of the comments I was reading at all trails yeah. and people are saying you have to stick to the Karen's. Yeah. And if you sometimes, you know, on more flat mountains, they mark a general area and you can see the next one. You don't have to go straight to it. You can kind yeah. of meander uh, on this. It looks like you have to stick on trail. Yeah. And if not, I mean, I could imagine with the snow cover, you get off trail a little bit. If you get onto those poker chips with a 15 to 30 degree that's angle steep. You could just start sliding. And well, if you and, start sliding and I've, I've slid a little bit of mountains where it wasn't a cliff, but it's scary cause you have zero control. And yeah. if you start a slide, it's possibly slid right off somewhere. It's, yeah. And I'm not implying that he went off trail on purpose. I think, Oh yeah, I definitely don't think he would do that. I'm sure he probably researched the crap out of these mountains before climbing yeah. them. And he knew that you need to stand the proper routes. I think maybe the conditions were bad enough that he got turned around. I, I would agree with that because, I mean, just, just the minimal research of us looking at it online, yeah. we're already like, okay, this is some serious stuff. <laughs> yeah. So he lives there. He knows the area. He well, he's from New Mexico, but he's okay. hiked. He's but he's hiked, he's hiked the area. Okay. In Colorado, yeah. So he knows the area. When yeah. you do peaks in Colorado, there's a lot that are alike in certain you don't, sections. You don't hike. You don't summit 50. You don't do 50 technical climbs and summit a mountain. By just like winging it every time, yeah, like and, and not having issue, yeah, like you could maybe get away with doing that once or twice, and then mm-hmm. something's gonna happen. I'm sure he, being a U.S. Marine, uh, you know, Marine veteran, um, he's probably very regimented in his research of these mountains. I'm sure he probably probably knew every route you're supposed to take, and probably mapped it out, and probably talked to people, and I'm sure he knew what he was supposed to do. But it, you know, anyone in like the video you showed, going up the mountain, conditions get bad enough. Yeah, it can just happen. Even the most experienced person can get turned around. And at a mountain like this, there's literally no margin for error. Yeah. I mean. No, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like you get off route and you step in the wrong spot and start sliding. Yeah. You're going off sheer face and there's nothing you can do. And you're not anywhere. If you fall off a cliff, you're nowhere near a trail where someone's going to find you. And I think part of the thing that adds to the difficulty of finding his remains, because obviously I don't think he's, he would survive the fall, is we don't have a definite location of where he was going to be each day. Yeah. We have him in the parking lot, but his family said he moves quick. Yeah, like, he may have planned to do Pyramid Peak and then changed his mind and said, "I want to do one of the other peaks nearby." Yeah, I mean, maybe he started going up Pyramid and it was too sketchy, so he went and back. He, to went Maroon. back down, tried the other one, and yeah. that's where it would have seemed like a late start, maybe. Yeah, if he did it, so we could speculate all day long. But I, I'm in agreement with you. It, it's probably a really tragic accident. Yeah, and not that the other ones aren't tragic, but when you have someone that knows what they're doing, 
it's probably something that was simply out of his control. Yeah, I mean, the the lady who recommended this said it, it, it was the talk of the climbing community for years after this happened. Um, it sounds like Dave Cook was a well-known and highly regarded climber in the, the Colorado climbing community. Sure. I mean, you would have to be if you've done 50 summits. Um, so, yeah, real sad, sad story. Um, I feel bad the family is not going to get closure. Maybe they will someday. Yeah. But I think what they're doing with that website is super cool. That is awesome. We, um, uh, are you going to put the link in the, the I'll notes? I'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Go check it out. There was a, I started playing it without the audio, but there's a, a video that looks like it's from his wife where yeah. she's kind of introducing what they do. Go watch it, and if you have a couple bucks, maybe skip our Patreon for a month. Yeah. Donate to charity. I'd rather have that happen and, th- and then come back to Patreon later. Yeah, because these search and, <laughs> yeah, these search and rescue teams really, I mean, without them out there searching – I mean, no one would ever be found. Yeah, we've talked to a couple of them that didn't necessarily want to come on the air if they're like they just don't want to be on the radio. Yeah. But every single one we've talked to, they're like we said, they're not paid, and they take it so seriously. Yeah, they talk about the strategy. They talk about how they have their beepers and they they have like their employers know, hey, if that thing goes off, you're going to be going. Yeah, and they take time out away from their family, away from their job, making money, risking their lives, risking their lives to go help other people. And they like doing it. Yeah. So absolutely. And they feel terrible when they end a, a search. Oh, my gosh. Anything. Yeah. From everyone we talk to, it's yeah. just like they feel like failures if they can't yeah. bring closure. And our show is based on there's thousands of people that aren't found. And it's so it can be very daunting. So any type of support, throw, throw them their way. Yeah. So uh, I, I think this is, uh, I don't know, one of the few times we just agree pretty much right on one theory. I don't think it's, it could, I don't think it's animals. I don't think it's anything else. I no. think it's just the conditions and the difficulty of the mountain. Yeah, and a potential uh, mistake by an expert because he's just simply human. Yeah, and I thought this was a cool episode to do just because you've been there and seen him with your own eyes. Yeah, and uh, definitely go. Don't climb if you're not a good climber, but go check it out. It's, even if you're a beautiful. good climber, don't yeah. climb it. Yeah, or go with a guide, or if they have guided services, go with somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, but definitely, if you can get out to Maroon Bells, it's I definitely want to see it. It's an amazing, amazing hike. Uh, and you can just do the day hike stuff and, and bring your kids. And it it's, seems it's really like nice. it's up there. Like after seeing all this, it's up there with like seeing Half Dome. Yeah, like it's on that level of you know, I've seen Half Dome, so I'd love to see Mar- the Maroon Bells at some point. All Not right. climb them though. Well, I don't know. I I, th- I think that's I think that's our theories. Hey. Yeah, that's our theories. All right. Pretty cut and dry, this one. Well, uh, thanks again for tuning into our show. Uh, we appreciate all of you for listening and sharing locations unknown with your friends and family. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, we have the YouTube channel up and running where you can subscribe to our show as well as other video content. Uh, if you'd like to support the, support the show, visit our Facebook store, buy some cool swag, or on our And call our website. phone number. Call the phone number. Uh, otherwise, you can also donate to a Patreon account uh, at Locations Unknown on Patreon. And just remember, when enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or simply taking a walk, always remember to leave no trace. Thanks, and we will see you all next time. <laughs>